Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. I uh, took out my uh, earphones to get ready, but then uh, was uh, lost in thought there. It is good to be with you. I am uh, thankful for you letting me into your home week after week. Uh, by God's grace, though, I'm looking forward to some of you at least being able to be back here with me next week. The uh, capacity of the building is limited, but we're going to get in just as many as, as the state of California is going to allow and, uh, and look forward to worshiping with some of you in person and hopefully in the upcoming weeks as many of you in person as possible. I'm going to uh, uh, read to you now from Psalm 51. It's going to be our text th this, this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn Psalm 51. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, from the English Standard Version. As I mentioned last time we were in a psalm, the note at the top where it says there to the choir master is part of God's inspired text, and it helps us understand a lot about this psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for giving us your word, uh, for preserving for us the Psalm of David. And we pray, Lord, that we be instructed from it this morning. We pray, Lord, that the weight of our sin would be exposed, that we'd be taught how to appropriately repent, Lord, that we would have the right motivation for repentance so that you are brought glory. Uh, please, Father, uh, your word uh, is, is empowered by your spirit, the same spirit that hovered over the waters when the earth was created, uh, the same spirit that brings new life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins is the Spirit is the one that is going to apply this word to our hearts. Father, I can do nothing. Uh, may you bring glory to yourself through your Spirit uh, 
In Jesus' name, amen. As we looked at that note in the beginning of Psalm 51, it says, the choir master, a Psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone, gone into Bathsheba. And that note there gives us some uh, historical background for where uh, this psalm was, was written, or at least the time period that it points back to. It goes back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And it records what pretty much was a sad and wicked year of King David's life. David was, was perhaps around the age of 50 at this time, having already reigned over Israel for 20 years. Many of you know the story of these chapters, how David, the same David who wrote this psalm, committed adultery with one of his, his soldiers' uh, wives, the, uh, the soldier by the name of Uriah. How this woman Bathsheba became pregnant. And when David found out, David arranged for Uriah's murder at the hands of the enemies in battle. 2 Samuel 11.25 ta talks about uh, what happens after Bathsheba finished mourning for her now dead husband. And when the mourning for Uriah was over, David sent and brought her, Bathsheba, to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. To outward appearance, it may have even looked like David was doing a good thing, uh, bringing in the wife of one of his fallen soldiers. But God knew, and God was displeased. That could have been the end for a David, but God had grace on David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, describes how God moved in David's life. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan is prophet. And Nathan came to David and said to him, and what follows is a parable that exposes David's sin. What grace of God to use his word and David's life to convict him of his sin. See, scripture records no evidence of, of David feeling sorrow over that year, of David being humbled. 2 Samuel 12 Verse 9, Nathan ends, and he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight, David. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. But God isn't mixing any words there through his prophet. David, you've murdered. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that is the beginning of David's repentance and being reconciled to God is admitting his sin. Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And that would have been the punishment in the Old Testament law for murder. It would have been David's own death. But in verse 14, there's still going to be consequences, sad consequences. It says, Never, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 12 says what happens next. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. On the seventh day, verse 18 says, the child died. 
Verse 20, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And we don't know if David was making trips to, to, to the house of the Lord, uh, to the tabernacle or to where the Ark of the Covenant was to worship in, 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 in the week of fasting. Uh, but when, um, when, he, when the consequences had been met, or at least the beginning of the consequences, uh, David, now reconciled, goes and worships the Lord. It's impossible to pin down the writing of Psalm 51. Reading through, you can imagine this, this psalm was, was similar to what David prayed during the week, during that week of waiting to see if uh, God would rescue the life of his newborn son. Maybe David took some of the prayers of that week, m- maybe some of the, of the journaling that he had done and crafted this song uh, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Maybe David recorded this in confidence that God would use his experience to teach others, to teach us this morning how to repent and how to seek forgiveness from God. And perhaps you this morning come aware of hidden sin in your life, perhaps of a great sin, one that you have been feeling the suffocating guilt of nearly every day. It's the kind of sin that rises in your memory when you have moments of quiet. This psalm is about how you can become right with God. As you see in the life of David, repentance and reconciliation doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. David dealt with the consequences of his sin for many, many years. It doesn't mean that you won't have to make it right with others. But you can be forgiven of any sin. I understand that some of you who are listening today have done horrible things. Perhaps adultery, perhaps even murder. You can be forgiven. This psalm is for you, but it's also for those of you who have some festering, slow-burning sins, simmering on the pot of your life, the oven of your life. Perhaps it's a sin that hasn't seemed so serious. Perhaps it hasn't stopped you from serving or for joining in song worshiping. Maybe you still have truly been enjoying Bible times, but it's there, right under the surface, and it's interrupting the vibrancy of your spiritual life. Perhaps it's sinful anger towards God about his sovereignty in your life. Perhaps it's complaining and dissatisfaction. Perhaps it's resentment towards God or towards others. Bitterness and pride, how you deserve better. Perhaps it's greed in an ever-going quest for more. Perhaps it's, it's an unsettledness that you know really you're seeking to be independent from God by accumulating wealth, that you want to be self-reliant. Perhaps it is a slow-burning lust that you keep returning to. Psalm 51 is as relevant for, relevant for you, for you who has that one great unforgettable sin, as for those who have an, an infestation 
of small sins that seem fairly forgettable. It's relevant for all of us. And what's truly amazing is that Psalm 51 is not just about how you can be forgiven by God, although that is truly amazing in itself. But this psalm is about more than being forgiven by God. This psalm is about rejoicing in God. And it's not just a psalm about rejoicing in God after you've been forgiven by God. It's a psalm about being used by God as you're rejoicing in God for being forgiven by God. This is a psalm about being reconciled to God so that you can be used by God. Today, we're going to see four principles drawn from Psalm 51 of how you are to respond when God exposes your sin. Four principles drawn from Psalm 51 of how you are to respond when God exposes your sin so that you can be reconciled to him and used by him. So that you can be reconciled by him, reconciled to him and used by him. So what do you do when God makes you aware of your sin? Now, for some of you, this is what you need to do for the first time you see your sin in all of its, its horribleness and you dread God's wrath and you run to the cross and you put your hope in Jesus Christ. But for others of you, it, 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 and like David, it's those who've already experienced a, a new birth, a regeneration, a, a rightness with God, those who have enjoyed worshiping and serving him and need to be made right to him again. So one more time, we're going to see four principles drawn from Psalm 51 of how you are to respond to God when he exposes your sin so that you can be reconciled to him and used by him. And so this psalm, it is longer. So what I plan on doing is reading a verse or two and briefly explain a, a chunk of verses. And then I'm going to, to, to draw an application point. We're going to look at the first two verses, Psalm 51 verses one and two first. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David here makes four requests of God. In the beginning of verse one, he says, have mercy. He's asking God to do something that he knows he doesn't deserve for God to act favorably towards him when he deserves God to punish him. He's looking for God's compassion. In the second half of verse one, he uses the phrase blot out. And the word has the idea of, of scraping off, of, of, of erasing or removing to obliterate. God, take, destroy this offense I have against you. Take it out of your, of your record book. In the, second, in the first half of verse two, David uses the phrase wash. Now, they didn't have soap. He just wasn't throwing something in, in a, a washing machine. It meant to beat the dirt out of in water. The only way to, to, to get dirt out of a cloth was through friction. And David's saying, I'm like a filthy garment. Wash me thoroughly. And the second half of verse 2, he uses the word cleanse. And that is a word used to be to, to, to be ritually cleansed, to be welcome to partake in temple worship. It's to be free from the uncleanness that keeps you away from God, from that which which has stopped you from being welcomed into God's presence. David uses, so he uses these four verbs 
to, for what God, he wants God to do toward him. But then he uses three words to describe his, his sinfulness. Second half of verse one, he uses the word, the word transgressions. And it refers to, to our rebellious acts uh, towards us revolting against God. First half of verse two, he uses the word, the word in iniquity, which means to go astray. It's to go off God's decreed way, to go off of God's path. And this is not just a wandering off. This, this, this is a, a deliberate and willful leaving of God's way to know the right way, but to choose another. Second half of verse sin. And the second half of verse two is the word sin. It's to miss the goal, to, to fall short of the standard of God's word. And it represents a failure, not, not just a messing up, but a failure to obey what you know you ought to do. David pleads with God for mercy in verse one because of who God is. He says, according to your steadfast love, have mercy on me, O God. Not because I've been a good king or not because I've got a great past but because of who you are, according to your steadfast love. The only thing I can plead to God is who you are. You have this covenant keeping, promise making love toward me. You have this, this loving kindness towards me, this loyal love. I'm the object of your affection. So please have mercy on me, oh God. And then he says at the end of verse one, according to your abundant mercy, or blot out my transgressions, according to your abundant mercy, and, 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 and sometimes it's translated as tender mercy. Mercy is the feeling of compassion at times for one who is helpless. That word mercy has the same Hebrew root as the Hebrew word for womb. It's the feeling you have, a mother has for one who has, who has grown that child inside her womb. Or the siblings have, knowing that they shared a common womb. It's tender mercy, compassion. And this is what David appeals to, as he knows he needs God to extend mercy to him. So this is our first principle. Our first principle is, when God exposes your sin, when you hear God's word preached, when you've been reading in his word, when, when God's spirit is affecting your conscience, when God exposes your sin, immediately go to God because of his grace. When God exposes your sin, immediately go to God because of his grace. That's the first principle. Dave had, David had waited nine months before going to God. Maybe he had spent the time justifying his sin. Maybe he tried to put on a smile. We, we, we don't know how hardened or how seared his conscience was during this time. But in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51, David is done waiting. When you can't fix your car, you go to an, 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 an auto mechanic. You go to Frank, at least I do. When you are sick and you aren't getting better, you go to a doctor. When you can't solve your leaky pipe, you call a plumber. And when you see your guilt, you must go to God. God is willing for you to come to him, for every one of you who are listening. His grace is great and his mercy is tender. His mercy was tender to David who murdered, to Peter who forsook Jesus lying that he didn't know him to a thief being executed along with Jesus, to Saul who persecuted Christians, 
to Manasseh who sacrificed his own son. God is merciful. Don't be like so many typical men, and I'm talking about men here as compared to women. Don't be like so many typical men who refuse to go to a mechanic when their car is disassembled because they've tried to fix it, or who refuse to go to a doctor, or who refuse to call a plumber. Don't try to deal with your guilt on your own. You can't atone for it with any kind of sacrifice. You can't make up for it with promises of good works. You can't bleach out the stain of your sin. You can't erase your revolt from God's records. Only God can blot out your transgressions, and he is willing, so run to him for forgiveness. And believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who have run to the cross of Christ already, how quick we should be to make that beeline to the cross. You have seen already how gracious he is in the sacrifice of his son. Your stains have already been washed out in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The path to God's throne has been cleared by the crucifixion of Christ. The road to God's throne has been, has been paved through the resurrection of God's Son. Go to God who is gracious and merciful. Don't delay in going to the merciful God. When God exposes your sin, immediately go to God because of God's graciousness. That's the principle we see from verses 1 and 2. In ways, verses 1 and 2 is a summary of the whole psalm. In verses 3 to 6, though, we see a focus David has, and David teaches us to not minimize our sin. I'm going to cover a little verses 3 through 6 here. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. See, David had been concerned about covering his tracks. That's really what led to Uriah's death. David didn't want to be exposed as a man who had committed adultery, so it led towards, towards more sin. But now David has given up his hiding from sin, stifling it. He's given up ignoring it. He's given up trying to suppress. He's given up trying to justify it. You can imagine David waiting for the birth of that little boy, thinking that maybe somehow if he loved that child and, and enough that he could maybe atone for his sin. David's done with that. I'm just imagining there. What he says is, my sin is ever before me. He's continually aware of it. He confesses it to God. He's burdened by it. Continues in verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David recognizes the gravity of his sin. He recognizes the weight of it. Yes, he had sinned against people. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the many people who, who he had been lying to over the, over the past year. But his sin was foremost against God. God is so much greater. That he, in ways he could say, against you, you only. The sin is really about me and you, God. And that's what Nathan had said to him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Joseph, uh, in, in saying no to Potiphar's wife, he understood that sin was really ultimately against God. In Genesis 39, verse 9, 
He, Joseph said, nor has Potiphar kept back anything from me except you, Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. How then I can do this great wickedness and sin against God? It doesn't mean it would have been sin against Potiphar. But Joseph understood that this sin was against God. And now David has understood against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this doesn't make mean you're not going to have to confess sins or make it right with the people you've sinned against. But here David is submitting to God's verdict of him being guilty. He is submitting to whatever judgment God has for him. God is the one who is in the right, not David. David makes no excuse for his sin. He doesn't try to rationalize his sin. He says, God, you are going to be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I'm keeping my mouth shut. I've sinned against you. Verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Hebrew words for brought forth and, and, and conceive, uh, they, they, they both emphasize David's being, being a creature. They're, they're very physical, almost animal world, words. And this wasn't referring to, 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 to how his mom gave birth to him or how he was he was he was conceived like it was an, an an illegitimate child. He's not blaming or shaming his mother. It's nothing really to do with his mother. It's more to do with his nature as a sinner. See, after David had experienced so much of God's grace in his life, David has responded like like a beast. He's just followed his brute instincts. He's been acting like an unregenerate man, more like an animal than like someone that God has shown so much grace to. Verse six, David exposes more of, uh, of how sinful he is. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in this, in the secret heart. See, in a sense, God's ministry to David had become fruitless, at least this over this past year. David's harvest was barren. After a lifetime of God's grace, now he's, he's murdering and hiding sin and, and this adulterous marriage. Having God's law hadn't improved David, at least not currently. God delighted in truth and, and seeing David's firmness and, and faithfulness, but instead he found none. David was empty. David had been taught wisdom. And, 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 and God does teach wisdom in the secret heart, but God had taught David how to live according to God's law. And David had experienced that in the past, but now David had turned down the volume on wisdom's cry. He, he has stifled out wisdom and David has gone spiritually rogue. What God delights in is missing. This leads to principle two. When God exposes your sin, confess without excuse both your sins and your sinfulness. When God exposes your sin, confess without excuse both your sins and your sinfulness. Hiding from God is futile. He knows you completely. He knows the words on your lips before you speak them. He knows you more than any author knows his book. He knows you more than any parent knows their child. 
There is no value in hiding, no value in pretending, and no value in minimizing. See, we have to see our sins in the terrifying brightness of God's holiness. And this is an important part of our being reconciled to God when we first come to saving faith in Christ or after we realize that we've been holding on to sin and not truly confessing it and not really repenting of it. When you see your cancer, when, 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 when the doctor shows you the x-rays of your lung, you can't just say, well, I've got a cold. What does God's word say about your sin? Do you use biblical words to speak of your sin? Or are you stuck saying, you know, uh, uh, I messed up or I made a mistake or, you know, I know I shouldn't have done that. See, you have to be willing to hear God's evaluation of you. That's what David had avoided for months. Now he's painfully exposed. We have to be willing to hear God's God describe our sin as he sees it, how, how he describes it in, our, in his word. And to make no defense. If God were to pronounce you guilty, would, would, would he expect from your track records that you would make a bunch of arguments against his verdict? Would you be saying how you were really misunderstood or, you know, there's someone else who's really at fault here? Or I was really tired or it had been a long stretch. This coronavirus had lasted for months. Brothers and sisters, is that how you respond when God's saints confront you? See, your sin is more than a mistake. My sin is more than a mistake. It is an expression of a futility that began within us while we were still in the womb. We are made in the image of God, but that image has been twisted. It's been shattered. It is a decrepit thing apart from God's reconciliation and grace. And when and that sin that remains in us who have been renewed and made new creatures in Christ, whatever that remaining sin is, it still has this influence over us. I don't know. It's like some kind of decrepit creature in the corner Somehow, we don't have to listen to it, but, but, but it's pleading for us to, to go back to who we were. Our nature, who we are apart from Christ, and maybe who some of you are this morning, our nature is broken. Saying so is not an excuse, but it is an admission of our brokenness. It's not an excuse. Can you admit that you have not lived up to God's grace toward you? Can you say, along with David, that God has a right to expect truth in you? That he has a right to expect faithfulness from you and commitment from you, but instead he finds duplicity and inconsistency? Yes, I know it's painful to say, but it's true. God has taught many of you wisdom. Many of you have, have heard many years of wisdom. Many of you have practiced wisdom. But when we are hiding sin and when God exposes that sin, we, we see and said that we've suppressed wisdom. We've suppressed the wisdom that God delights in. And we've been making room for the flesh to run havoc. In all of this confession, 
Now, David isn't, isn't whipping himself. He's not trying to make himself feel really bad to atone for his sins. There's an attitude of silence before his superior. When we come for grace, we want to come standing naked and exposed. And standing exposed is uncomfortable. Many of us do not like looking in, in the mirror. And the brighter the, the, the light, the more uncomfortable we are. We grab a towel if someone comes in while we are standing naked. Are you standing before God naked now? Are you willing to confess both your sins and your sinfulness to God so that you can receive mercy from God? Are you willing to do so without making excuse so that God is, 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 is justified in his judgment so that he is blameless when he speaks? When, 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 when you are just willing to say, God, say whatever of me is true. I know it's true. I am a sinner needing of grace like the text uh, the, the, the tax collector we learned about last week, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And even for those of us who have experienced Jesus's cleansing, who, who know that we stand before him justified, we still know, God, you see who I am apart from your sin, from apart from your son, and who I am apart from grace, the, the, the desires that remain in me, the sins I've been committing, they are filthy. That is what we must do. We must confess without excuse both our sins and our sinfulness. So the first principle we looked at in verses 1 and 2, we must immediately go to God because God is gracious. The second principle, when God exposes your sin, confess without excuse both your sin and your sinfulness. Just don't make it a list of things you've done. Tell him again how desperate you are still for Jesus Christ. Now let's look there. Next principle is going to come from uh, Psalm 51, verses 7 to 12. See, for this kind of, of premeditated and intentional sin that, that, that David has done, there was no sacrifice prescribed in God's law. These were sins of high treason. The, 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 the only punishment was death. Following the law, he'd be cut off from temple worship. So he goes to God to do what only God can do. It's not, he just can't bring a sacrifice for these sins. Verse seven, David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. To, to, to purge, and, and, and it's a fascinating word. Uh, the same Hebrew word can mean sin, but in this form here, it means unsin. Unsin me. God, make me as if I hadn't sinned. Undo the sin. He says, purge me with hyssop. And that was a, 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 a small bush that would be kind of used as a brush. It, it would be dipped in, in, in special purifying water. It would be sprinkled on those who were ceremonially uh, uh, unclean. And whether that was from, from, from a, a house from mildew or from an infectious skin disease or for someone who had touched a dead body. He, he said, unclean me. Cleanse me, sprinkle me with this, with, with this cleansing so I can be unsinned, so that I can be what I was like before this sin, so that I can be whiter than snow. Free me from the stain of sin. 
Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. And bones you've broken re refers to the effects of, of guilt on, on mind and, and, and body. God's heavy hand of discipline had left David's spirit crushed. He had been apparently ignoring that, 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 that guilt and that crushedness, but he felt no joy when he went into the temple worship. We don't know if he stayed away or if he went, but now he wants to hear joy and gladness again. He wants to go to enjoy the tabernacle worship wholeheartedly. He wants to, to be at home where God's people are singing. He wants to be free from this guilt. Verse 9, hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. He wants God to look away and to turn in the opposite way. For God to, 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 to look away from what God knows. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And David here is not praying for salvation for the first time. Everything we see about David is that he was made right with God through faith long before this sin. The heart refers here to, to the center of his will. It's not just about his feelings. He says, create in me a clean heart. He's talking about God doing a, a, a renovating work to, to God do something new within him for God to miraculously transform him from how he's been living, to give him a clean heart, a heart that is appropriate to God's presence, a, a heart that won't do the same things again, a heart that won't go back to the sin. In the ESV, it says a right spirit, although the note says a steadfast spirit, and that, that, that is a much better way to translate this verse. Bring me back to a steadfast spirit, one that doesn't forget you, that doesn't easily leave you. I want to be different, God. Verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And this really has has a particular reference to what happened after Saul's King King Saul's rebellion against God. Saul was the king before David. Saul was the first king over Israel. And because of Saul's of Saul's rebellion, it says in 1 Samuel 16, 14, that God's that God's spirit left Saul. It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And that's language. Of, uh, of, of how God's spirit would come upon God's leaders to, 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 to enable them and to empower them for special tasks. David had seen firsthand how Saul was exposed with all kinds of wickedness when God's spirit left Saul. Really, the end of 1 Samuel shows Saul's increasingly turning into madness as God's spirit leaves him. David has spent the last year drinking deeply from the poison of his own wickedness, his own rebellious, rebellion. And now David dreads what would happen if God left him, if God abandoned him to his sin, to the sin that he had chosen over God. And really, I think that you can look at this verse as, 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 as some of the, the, the warnings of Hebrews, of, of those who have enjoyed so much of God's grace and then who walk away from the faith. 
of those who turn their back, of those, of those who deny Christ. And just as much as a saint would read that saying, God, I don't want that to be me. Please don't let that happen to me. I think that that is David's cry here as he sees the, the, the madness and the sin and the wickedness that followed Saul's rebellion. And he says, God, don't cast me away from your presence. I don't want to leave. I love you, God. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I, I want to sing your praises. David dreads that this kind of this, this slavery to sin he's willingly succumbed to would become permanent and eternal. And so he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David makes no pretense of deserving this. He can only ask, bring me back to joy that accompanies your salvation, God. I've known it in the past. I want to know it again. I want to taste again of your loving kindness and give me a willing spirit. Make me a new person. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And again, he's, he's not praying for salvation for the first time, but, but, but renew a work in me. I used to say no to sin. I want to be different. Give me again this, this heart of someone who worships God because he wants to, who wants to come before you willingly, not because he's forced, not because I'm the king and I have to go do, bring a sacrifice, but with a the, with the willing spirit that would say no to the flesh. He's asking God for a complete turnaround from what he's been experiencing. And that brings us to our third principle. When God exposes your sin, humbly and hopefully turn to God to renew what your sin has broken. The third, the third principle, when God exposes your sin, humbly and hopefully turn to God to renew what your sin has broken. This is the consequences of your sin. Turn back to him. Like a child who's bringing a, a toy to his parent to fix, a toy that that child has broken in a fit of rage. Sin makes a mess of our lives. And God is the only one who can repair what is broken. And it may not be simple. There may be consequences. David's consequences would last the rest of his life and the rest of his children's life. But God can repair what is broken. God can bring you into a restored relationship with himself. God can uphold you with a willing spirit. Whether, you have been, you, whether, whether you've sinned in the worst possible way or whether you've been slowly drifting, God can renew you. You can be in a position of unsin of brighter than fresh snow. And this is what happens when God justifies you, but, but we as believers still have to have our sins forgiven by God. You can be so clean again to be at home under the blindingly bright bulb of God's holiness. You can be before him knowing that you're wearing the white robes of Jesus Christ's own righteousness. You can be rejoicing with God's people on Sunday morning. You can be celebrating God's grace with vigor in your voices. You can be savoring Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. You can have a renewed hunger for God's righteousness. You can have a resoluteness and obedience. 
You can be confident that God will not abandon you to the destructive dominion of sin that you've been dallying with. That he won't leave you outside in the terrifying darkness of his grace, although you've seen it. And, and even after maybe salvation, you've tasted it. And you come to him and saying, God, don't leave me out there. I want to be back in obedience again. Instead, you could be enjoying the certainty of God's salvation as you experience his upholding you with a willing spirit, as you experience, again, the, the fullness of transforming grace, transforming you from one degree of glory to another. The Lord Jesus Christ can do all this in your life. Are you willing to ask this from him? See, we often want joy and gladness when we're experiencing guilt. We despair of crushed bones like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play. We want the stain gone. We want for God to look away from our shame and as we should. I think many of us get into a pattern of quickly offering a prayer every time we think of a sin. Without, without, without really praying through repentance the way that David is encouraging us here. See, we must also be willing to be done with sin. To have God create a clean heart in us. To do a new renovating work. For us to be remade in his image. And, and, and not just to be a new creature in Christ. But then when, 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 that, when that peters out and we start dawdling where we don't belong. To go back to him and say, God, get rid of this festering sin. Get rid of this bitterness. Get rid of this, 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 this anger towards your sovereignty. I'm ready to be done complaining. I'm ready to be conformed to the image of Christ again. We want joy restored, but are you willing to persist in obedience for him to uphold you with a willing spirit to delight again in doing his will? As you bring your request for forgiveness to God, are you willing to repent? Are you coming for God for a conscience-easing fix? not really that different from what many addicts desire. Are you coming to God to be fixed as well, to be repaired, to be restored, to be changed? See, the repentant can come in humility and in hope to the one who can wash away the stain of their sin and return them to the joy of obedience. The repentant can come in both humility and hope to the one who can wash away the stain of their sin and return them to the joy of obedience. That can be you this morning. See, the repentant sinner is done living for himself. He wants to be used to bring glory to God and pleasure to God. And that's where David goes in Psalm 51 verses 13 and 19. Verse 13 says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. See, David wants sinners, now that he's repented and he's being changed, to join him in repentance. The reconciled has good news to share with the guilty. When it says, I will teach transgressors your ways, it's not just the commands, but God's forgiving ways. We have good news, saints. If you have been forgiven, you have good news for those who are enslaved. 
And if we have been forgiven, how can we not share this good news? Verse 14, David continues, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. And he names the sin here for what it is. Blood guiltiness. I'm a murderer, God. Deliver me from, from murder, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. See, as he's getting ready to make known the ways of God's forgiveness, he is willing to, to confess what he's done. David prays that when God delivers him from this guilt and from the punishment he knows he deserves, that he will sing aloud, that he will shout for joy of God's righteousness. And that is the mystery of the cross, saints. That God is righteous in judgment, but also righteous in salvation. How can this be? How can God be both just and merciful? How can the righteous God who condemns sin also be the righteous God who saves the condemned? How can we go from guilty to knowing no condemnation? Romans 3.26 talks about the cross work of Christ. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. And here, these are sweet words. Romans 3.26, so that God might be just and the justifier. Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how God makes his righteousness known. He punishes Jesus Christ in justness, and then he justifies the sinner through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. This is the righteousness we need to sing aloud of. We can sing aloud of his condemning righteousness because we can sing aloud of his gracious righteousness. We know his salvation and we cannot zip our lips. We have to make it known. David will make God's grace known in verse 15. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This is what we need to go do in this upcoming week. This is what we need to do today in our homes. This is what we need to do in our workplaces. This is what we need to do in our neighborhoods. If we get this psalm, we got to burst forth with it. And verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. God, I'm concerned now about bringing you what pleases you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. A sacrifice was meant to be pleasing to God. It was a, 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 a recognition that, 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 that the sinner needed a substitution in its place. It was a sacrifice was a way to celebrate the fellowship that one had with God. But if David had been bringing sacrifices before repentance... They were a meaningless offering. How could he do that while his, 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 his lips were, 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 were pursed in, in, in a feigned smile or his hard heart was just putting on a show? He's like, God, you don't want any of that stuff. Instead, in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God, those that are, are worthy of God, those that God would be pleased by are broken and contrite heart. And that word contrite, it, it's the same word we saw about his bones being crushed. God wants a crushed heart. God wants a devastated heart. The heart of the tax collector was broken and crushed. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he says, you will not despise that. And of course, this is an understatement here. This is what God receives with joy. God was more concerned with broken hearts than with wet eyes. 
you, you, you might make your, your, your voice crack when you're confessing sin, but God wants a cracked heart. Verse 18, David continues, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of, 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 of Jerusalem. It's kind of a, a surprising shift away from, from David's personal focus to David's focus on God's people. But David's concern for God's glory is just not personal. This is where repentance will bring you. It's not just about you. It's about God's glory and his people, one of whom you are. The worship to which God has been restored, it, it was centered then in, in, in the city of Jerusalem. So he prays for the health of Jerusalem so that God's people can join him in this God-pleasing worship. Verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifice, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. He imagines a great celebration towards God. But it's going to be after God does good to his people, the same kind of good that David himself is experiencing in his heart, the good of reconciliation and the blessing of repentance and the joy of forgiveness. And that's what David wants for the rest of God's people. This leads us to our fourth principle. When God forgives your sin, devote yourself to God's pleasure and God's glory. When God forgives your sin, devote yourself to God's pleasure and God's glory. The first principle we looked at was when God exposes your sin, immediately go to him because he is so gracious. Second is when God exposes your sin, confess without excuse both your sins and your sinfulness. When God exposes your sin, the third principle, humbly and hopefully turn to God to renew you and to give uh, uh, and to renew what your sin has broken. And here's the fourth principle. When God forgives your sin, devote yourself to God's pleasure and his glory. In verses 13 and 19, we see the extent of David's forgiveness, the evidence of his clean heart. See, David had been concerned in the past only about his pleasure, about satisfying his lust, about hiding his sin at any cost. He had been proudly lost in this maze of his own making, in this labyrinth of lust and lies. But now that he's been reconciled, David is not just relaxing because his conscience has been cleared. His focus is on what pleases God and what brings God glory. God is not pleased by what you do while you postpone repentance. Uh, but he's not pleased by your going through the motions while you're trying to manage the consequences and try to suppress shame. And maybe you've been doing that. You've been bringing a sacrifice of tithe, of sacrifice of service, of, of sitting there during live streaming, of, of being a good worker and a good spouse and a good parent and a good friend. Those things are good, but they are not to assuage your conscience. Your conscience needs to be made right with reconciliation and repentance, coming to God, God's way. And that's now that David has done that, his heart is so different. Since God is pleased, God is pleased by what accompanies and by what follows repentance. God is pleased by brokenness over our sin. God is pleased by our rejoicing in forgiveness. I had a friend a long time ago who, who, who questioned, are you really forgiven if you don't feel joy? And he was trying to explain to me the contrast between faith and repentance. And when we understand that God has forgiven us, how can we not but experience at least some joy? 
How can we stop from singing of his saving righteousness? How can we stop from proclaiming how others can enjoy the same forgiveness? And how can we not pray for God's joy and the right worship from God's people? Are you ready to embrace God's worship in God's way for God's pleasure and God's glory? Or have your eyes been avoiding looking at your Savior for too long? Have you maybe been stuck seeing your sin and stuck in this horrible cycle of self-focus and an attempt at self-righteousness only to be followed by more self-focus? Enjoy the grace of full reconciliation found in Christ so that you can be liberated to live loving others and live living for his pleasure. May the joy of repentance be the motivation to proclaim the gospel. And may the testimony of your forgiveness multiply to thousands for generations. Your testimony could affect thousands. Let that burst forth from our lips, saints. Brothers and sisters, is your heart clean before the Lord this morning? Have you been cleansed? Have your sins been blotted out? Are you washed whiter than snow? Or are you still doubting his grace? Are you still hiding your sin, afraid to hear his verdict? Or maybe you are unwilling to bring him the full obedience he requires. Or maybe you're choosing to stay silent instead of proclaiming his grace for his glory. If Psalm 51 hasn't been your song, it can be. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is in Christ we can have our sins forgiven. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's meditate on Psalm 51. Oh, maybe for some of you, this is a quick run to the cross because you know this sin that you've been hiding for so long and you know you need to make it right. Maybe for some of us, we know that there's just been sin we haven't been dealing with. And maybe we've asked God's forgiveness of it of a thousand times, but have not really been repenting. Psalm 51 teaches us how to repent so that we can be reconciled to God and used by him. Let's pray. My Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask that you would do with it what you will. Father, there may be those listening this morning who have stifled the same big sin for so long, they've been miserable for so long, and they desperately need forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that they would see the beauty of your grace in Psalm 51, that they would have such hope that you are willing to forgive them. I also pray, Father, for us who have experienced some kind of hardening in our hearts where we really haven't been dealing with sins and we've gotten into some kind of quick penance act of just saying, God, I'm sorry. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be taking our sins seriously so that we would know the joy of forgiveness and that we would come to you for, for, for you to do a new renovating work in our heart, that we would go forward with, with, with proclaiming with confidence your forgiveness with a restored joy. 
Father, I can't do any of this work in my own heart. I can't do this work in the hearts of anyone listening. This is purely your spirit's work. Please do this work through your spirit so that your son is exalted in whom is the forgiveness of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.